Money Talks. I'm really glad you're with us. But man, we have got a dynamite show here. I mean, what I'm interested in is your cost of living. I'm interested in protecting you against the obvious changes to the purchasing power of currencies. That's what many people call inflation. Uh, But things like, you know, the huge increase, explosion in interest rates. I was worried about everyone borrowing. And that's why I talk about those things. There's nothing else I'm trying to talk about. I don't care about your politics or my politics or anything. I care about there are many, many Canadians who are suffering. Over half the Canadian population says they feel the stress. I think it's going to get worse. So we're going to do that today. I'm going to talk with Sylvain Charlebois, one of the foremost experts, uh, one of my absolute favorites when it comes to talking about what's happening to food prices. I mean, we get the political rhetoric this week, and it is absolutely unhelpful when I look at it. You're going to find this interview absolutely fascinating. If you're interested in knowing the fuller story past the sort of talking points of a politician. Also going to talk to Jeff Olin about the real estate market. Of course, we talk with Ozzy all the time, does a fabulous job talking about residential real estate. But he's talking the broader investment opportunities. What's happened is in the market itself, the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater. Well, Vision Capital tries to identify severely underpriced assets in the stock market in the real estate sector it could be though commercial it could be a shopping center uh, could be a warehouse that kind of stuff and sees where the value is i think you're going to find that also fascinating i've got michael i've got aussie uh and of course i've got victor batten cleanup about all the things that happened this week in the markets plus a goofy award shocking stat so stay with us but first you know talk about nostalgia talk about singing from the same ideological song sheet for the past 50 or 60 years or more because this week the 715,000 member of the Canadian Union of Public Employees CUPE announced their push to have higher corporate taxes they claim that corporate taxes has left in their words a huge hole in the federal budgets I mean my goodness the lack of sophistication the lack of understanding is breathtaking And it comes at a time, though, of stagnating economic growth, low productivity growth, lowest capital investment in decades. In short, we can't afford it. You know, you know, I I think you've heard this. The OECD forecasts that Canada is going to have the worst performing advanced economy with the lowest GDP per capita. What in this decade? Worse, that declining productivity growth is going to continue through 2030, 2060. And CUPE's solution, and it's been echoed by the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, their solution is to raise corporate taxes? Come on, it's a damning reflection on public education that people seem to buy that. They don't seem to understand the negative consequences of further raising corporate taxes, the impact on our standard of living, sustainability of social programs, starting with health care. How about this one? We've got public sector union, the biggest, talking about pushing corporate taxes up which threatens the viability of union pensions and non-union, let alone salaries, while becoming less competitive, less attractive for capital investment. I mean, please, productivity growth and economic investment are essential for our economic prosperity and their standard of living. But here's the point. It's for everyone. No matter what your political preferences, a weak economy impacts every one of us, regardless of your personal political preferences. You know, that's tough for some people to understand, as is the fact that if companies are forced to send out even more money to government, there's less available to increase salaries. And the research supports that. Less money to invest in new equipment, new technology in order to grow the company. Less money available for dividends to shareholders. 
Maybe QP can explain how taking even more money away from companies is going to help us improve productivity. That's the number one concern of every analyst. I just find it just so breathtaking that this same song has taken place for years and years. I should make that decades. I mean, do they really not understand how important economic growth and corporate growth is to union pensions? Because they invest in stocks and bonds. Maybe they don't understand who actually pays corporate taxes. I love this by Laval economist Stephen Gordon. He says, corporations are a form of wealth. Claiming that wealthy corporations pay income tax makes about as much sense as claiming that rich buildings pay property taxes. Come on, it's the shareholders who pay corporate taxes. It's the workers who own the shares through their pensions, including all of us at the Canada Pension Plan. Canadians through their mutual funds, though, or individual investment accounts. Maybe QP thinks that it's not enough that the vast majority of us, including union workers, pay half our income in some form of tax to the three levels of government. So they want us to pay more. But what I find truly astounding is QP's one-dimensional thinking. If they raise taxes on companies, they're pretending that there's no reaction, no consequences, no change in behavior. You know what? That has proven to be a straight line to a myriad of nasty, unintended consequences. It's time for new thinking in a new world. Hey, as I say, we got lots of stuff coming up, but you want to stay tuned. Here, Sylvain Charlebois, next on Money Talks. I was thinking the other day that food prices are up something like 20% in two years. And that's why I always look at not just one year's inflation. I go, go back because I make that distinction. Inflation's one thing. People care a lot more about their cost of living. You know, all they know is that they're paying a lot more. You know, what, Canadian families, the estimate or something like, you know, we're, we're in the neighborhood of $150 more per month for food. Well, no wonder people are concerned. And that's why I'm so pleased. We've had the help over the years of Sylvain Charlebois, Dalhousie Agri-Food, Agri-Food, I'm trying to say analytics. There we go, Sylvain. Great Agri-Food stuff. food Analytics Lab. Yes. But you're the guys who put out uh, terrific reports for a number of years on the, the state of the food industry, the state of the grocery industry, that kind of stuff. It's just become more in the spotlight. And I know you've had an extremely busy week. I mean, you've been in Ottawa, you know, meeting with the uh, head of the major grocery chains, meeting with the government, et cetera. Can we start by you just giving me a quick take on what that was about, what it was like? Well, it started this summer. Uh, actually, I think it was at the end of July, I, I get a phone call out of the blue, and it was Minister Champagne uh, himself. And uh, so he was asking me for some advice. Um we were hearing rumblings uh, coming out of France. Uh, the minister of, of the economy there, Mr. Le Maire, mm-hmm. was meeting with uh, people in the food industry. And they actually agreed to freeze prices for 5,000 food products uh, in France. And he was asking me whether or not it would be a good idea in Canada. And, and I paused and I said, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's a good idea for Canada. And I kind of explained to him why. And But he was you could feel that he was really uh, inspired by what was going on in France. And, uh, and of course, Carrefour came forward with a policy about shrinkflation, labeling shrinkflated products. I think that was uh, probably – it started, I think, early September. So he really felt that these things were all good ideas for Canada. And I kind of tried to convince him 
that those aren't necessarily things that we can do or should do in Canada. And so we talked again, I think it was a couple of weeks later, and then again. And then finally, two weeks ago, uh, before uh, London, before the meeting, the caucus meeting of the Liberals in London, he calls me, uh, it was on a Friday, and he said to me, well, if you were me, by next Thursday, what would you do? We need to do something. Mm -hmm. I'm asked to do something to help Canadians. And and that's when I said, basically, let's just call a meeting with the grocers. Uh, and and that's that's what happened on Monday. And uh, and frankly, when I met with uh, so I, I arrived on on Monday in Ottawa, and I was uh, I was I had the opportunity to brief Mr. Champagne and his team. There were about fifteen people in the room about what I was going to say and things that he may actually anticipate for the meeting. It was at eleven o'clock, so we were meeting at nine nine thirty in the morning. And they escorted me in and allowed me to avoid the zoo. I mean, there was media everywhere, yeah. like everywhere. So I didn't actually go through the funnel. Uh, the COs did, but not me. And so I went in on the back from the back door, met with the group. And I, the, my first question to the minister was, how, who canceled? Thinking that not everyone would show up. Everyone showed up michael mm -hmm. everyone showed up i was really impressed so it really so that's that's when i knew that grocers knew exactly what they needed to do uh they understood that this was all about politics it had nothing to do with the economics of, of food retailing at all so i, I was really uh, pleased about that and then we basically uh walked over to the meeting room uh, CEOs were waiting for us, so I walked in with uh, Mr. Lamontagne and, and uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland, who offered a few words, uh, gave a few words before the beginning of the meeting, just basically to tell the Big Five, this is this is how serious it is. It's a whole of government approach. This is about you know affordability and all that stuff. And then uh, she left, and then I was asked to brief the group. That that's and, and and the meeting lasted for a little, little over an hour and, and thirty minutes. Well, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth at all, and I want to make clear to the audience listening. But my goodness, they just noticed. Really, they just noticed ten percent inflation for you know double digit inflation for I don't know how many months it is now, and they've just noticed. And I might add, Dalhousie is going to be right. Your group is going to be correct. It looks like you said to us a while ago when it was around nine ten percent. You said, "Don't worry. It, well, at least it'll get down to under seven, you know, yep. by the end of the year, and that's going to be and correct." Still, we still think that that's that's going to yeah. be the case. Uh, in but, fact, actually, when I was on, in the group on Monday. I said uh, it was it was it was the Monday before StatsCan's numbers on the Tuesday, mm. and I told them tomorrow expect food inflation to drop and expect the gap between inflation and food inflation to drop even further down, yeah. and it's down dramatically to two point eight percent. And again, the problem, though, is that that's the rate of growth in prices, you know, and so I say over the two years and three years, you know, people are really feeling it there. Uh, I find it, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit on this, is thinking that actually price freezing is going to work when we have no historical examples. That's the most short-term thinking we can get on a problem that their own government through the Competition Bureau has examined. You know, we had a report in June. Uh, I just think, I, I just think, my goodness, do they know nothing? But tell the audience here 
What's the problem when you approach it in that short-term way that we're going to freeze prices? It's it's a it's a dangerous thing to do, uh, and, and a government would do that if they if it believes that uh, there's some profiteering going on. And mm. uh, to your point, Michael, uh, the uh, Competition Bureau did look into profiteering. They couldn't find any evidence. Yeah. The Bank of Canada did the same thing. No evidence. The Parliamentary Committee and uh, and Cody Blois was actually in the room uh, with with us uh, during the briefing. He's the chair of the Ag Committee. The Ag Committee didn't see any evidence either. We didn't find any evidence either as 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 a lab. And so, if you actually believe that profiteering is going on, you will want to freeze prices. You will want to tax companies, but. As you do all these things, you play around with market conditions and you end up basically making things worse for everyone, for both industry, for consumers. You discourage investments. And, uh, and frankly, as soon as you deal with it with an interventionist government, you get into trouble so quickly. And so that's like, like I said, France has options. It's in the middle of Europe. We do not. We're prisoners of our own geography. We're just north of the U.S. That's all we got. And so if we start playing around with the economy, guess what's going to happen? Companies are going to leave and prices are going to go up. Well, the whole simplistic narrative that says it's the, the food price problem is because of greed. I mean, my goodness gracious, I, I, I'm not allowed to say what I really think about that. But as if there's not so many elements to the supply chain, so many other factors involved. I mean, it's easy for people to understand if wages went up, maybe if property taxes went up. But I mean, you're talking that so many different levels, you know. Uh, do, food, uh, do fertilizer costs go up? Yes. And does that impact? Does uh, gasoline or diesel, you know, uh, going up? Uh, you have been doing some work, and I'll get to it in a few minutes, on the carbon tax, you know. Uh, we can debate how much. It definitely adds to the price of food, though. It, there, that's not, uh, uh, you know, that's not in question. It's, we can debate how much, but it adds. There's so many elements. My worry is when you get so simplistic as to say, oh, I know, the real reason is greed. Man, you are ignoring any meaningful solution, every other area, and price fixing does the same thing. Are you saying that prices aren't going up or, you know, input costs aren't going up? I mean, yep. it's just such a head shaker for me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I got to say, Monday really, I thought was a good day. I have to mm -hmm. give a lot of credit to the companies uh, who showed up. Uh, Galen Weston from Loblaw, Eric Lafleche from Metro, Michael Medline from Sobeys. I mean, they all came in thinking thinking that uh, it was going to be a figure-pointing session. Mm -hmm. So I, that's why I was glad to be the first to speak because yes. I got up. The first 10 minutes, Michael, I basically state the case about greedflation, about profiteering, and made it quite clear that we failed to find any evidence of profiteering. While the minister's in the room, while the deputy prime minister's in the room, the big five was in the room, so... As soon, Michael, as soon as I said that, you can feel the room, the tension just uh -huh. went down. And it was, it was instead, instead of focusing on defending their company, defending their raison d'être, it became a session to help the ministry. It was a big, it became a session to find solutions. Yes. And, uh, and I, I was very grateful, uh, for that. I think the companies really played along well. 
and uh, and and the meeting was became quite constructive after the fact, really. It's interesting, though, as again, I'm going to come back to the focus on uh, profitability or, you know, first of all, from what I read, you know, we're not talking about a hugely profitable business. It's by volume that they're profitable. You know, I mean, they just obviously we buy a lot of food. So if you're at like 3% or 3.7 at the most, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, again, I'm going by the Competition Bureau looking at that, as you said, so did the Bank of Canada, read both those reports. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of room in that way. It just seems, I guess I'm really frustrated by the fact that just to talk about the greed side is just so devoid of information, devoid of the facts, and that that's not to the benefit of the public. And so I'm happy to hear you say it got constructive very quickly, you know, thanks to you framing and giving some of that well, evidence and, and those I, facts. I, yeah, I, when we walked into the room, Michael, it, it was it was awkward. Mm-hmm. It, it was Nobody was talking to each other. I mean, think about this for a second, okay? You're asking the big five, okay, to come into a one room to talk about what is arguably the most sensitive thing when it comes to competitiveness, price, okay? Think about that. Yeah. Like why? So so you had the CEOs and you had lawyers, like I think Loblaw had three lawyers. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And uh, so when we walked in, nobody was talking to each other. So I went around with uh, Monsieur Lamontagne, Minister Freeland, to loose things up. But it was still very tense, very tense. Yeah. But it really shifted when I basically kind of laid it out. This, these are the problems. Uh, so first of all, let's put aside the greed thing. Not exist, doesn't exist. Let's focus on solutions. But I did say that there is a crisis of confidence. 82% of Canadians actually believe that greed is behind some of the pricing there. And so yes. that's a problem. That, that's a problem. Regardless if you agree with it or not, it's a problem. And the blackout periods, the bread price fixing uh, yep. scandal, I mean, I could go on and on. There, There's lots of problems that we need to t- take care of. And, and the session was really focus on actual problems at the ministry but the other issue and i actually went back to government what about the carbon tax what about the snack tax what about some of the issues that we see with logistics and inefficient railways and roads that are actually making our food more expensive what about regulation related to packaging and labels, the, 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 the P2 notice that we got in August? What are some of the things that are really policy-driven making food more expensive? So I, I threw a bone at CEOs. I threw a bone at the government as well and then left it there. <laughs> it was beautiful. Well, let me also add, what about uh... – milk marketing boards what about supply management i mean there's no argument that that increases price i mean i was thinking off the top of my head that my, today. not 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 necessarily yeah we have to be careful so first uh-huh. of all you remind me of one thing we didn't have the minister ag in the room this is re- to me as a policy wonk i find it incredibly interesting that the, the file of food inflation wa- is being handled by the Minister of Innovation, not the Minister of Ag. Yes. Okay. And I could feel that the Big Five was kind of uh, was kind of taken by surprise by Mr. Lamontagne's tone, uh, Mr. Uh, Champagne's tone. Mr. Champagne's tone is very is very action oriented. 
when you meet at ag in ottawa it's all about farm gate stuff yeah. it's all about it's all about supply management okay it's about the farmer as soon as you get closer to consumers it's not a priority as much for mr champagne everything on monday was about the consumer it was really refreshing now to your point about supply management which is a very very important point is it is supply management bad for competitiveness absolutely are there several issues with with supply management absolutely is it going to drive prices down if you eliminate it not necessarily here's okay. why at the very so this is a study we did a couple of years ago we believe that if you eliminate supply management in Canada, you will see prices drop for a while, for the first probably three, four years, perhaps five years, because you'll see American companies come into Canada to take, try to take over the market, okay? And there'll be, there'll be a fight, okay? And there'll be a, a price war to get market share. But as soon as things get settled after a while, guess what's going to happen to prices? They're likely to go up. That's exactly what happened in Australia, by the way. Mm -hmm. Prices went way down, way down for five years. And then if you, even given inflation, prices are actually higher than before. So can, like I said, Canada is an isolated market. So if you kill supply management, you will no longer have any production capacity in Canada because our farms are not competitive right now. Yeah. Well, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating subject that's not on the table. I mean, not just in that But it wasn't on ever. the table because no, it, was the, yeah. it, was, it oh, wasn't okay. the Minister of Ag and we didn't really have any trade groups in the room. So the focus was very much about yeah. retail and distribution. Let me come back to some of the other things you're saying, uh, just to make the public aware that there are a lot of factors, you know, government policy also that goes into increasing food prices. Uh, you just reminded me, I wouldn't have listed packaging, but I know full well that that changes oh. the price, you know, but can you just, just re-elaborate what you've said in that way, just again to, because we're not hearing that, let's face it, in the public debate, we're not hearing, hey, we changed this, we changed this, we got some transportation regulation problems, that kind of thing. Well, right now, uh, the government is looking at P2. Uh, the P2 notice is basically going to uh, ask grocers to come up with a plan. Yeah. Ottawa loves plans these days. <laughs> come up with a plan to reduce or eliminate plastics at retail. That's okay? right. Uh, especially in the produce section where plastic is directly in touch with the food. Okay? Yeah. So strawberries, blueberries, cucumbers, everything. So – they want all that plastic gone. Fine. That's great. Who, who wouldn't? Plastics are bad for the environment. Okay. Well, some plastics are much worse than others, but who wouldn't be? Who would want to see? But the problem with plastics is that it actually keeps our food safe, our food affordable. Logistically, it helps us transport uh, produce for long distances. Uh, let's say you're in California or a farmer in California and you supply Canada, you supply Sobe's, Loblaws, and tomorrow morning you're told by your client, Loblaws, oh, by the way, you cucumbers, you can't put that into plastic. Guess what's going to happen? They're not going to want to deal with Canada anymore. They'll just ship it somewhere else. And so what is likely to happen is that you'll not only see the increase of waste across the supply chain, 
uh, increase, okay, by $2.53 billion, according to an estimate. But you'll likely see a lot of companies not wanting to deal with Canada anymore because it's you have different sets of regulations, which could actually create a food security problem. And so, again, and I we met with ECCC twice about P2, twice. And both times, you could feel that science, science-based policy has no meaning. Zero. It's all about dogma. It's about focusing on one thing, and it's to get grocers to implement a plan to reduce plastics, no matter what. Doesn't matter if food prices go up or not. Just, just a quick emphasis there. One of the other costs that grocers that I don't hear anybody talking about, you know, in the public, that you know, they don't like the prices, is waste. You know, I mean, yes, it, that's a cost, you know, when I got stuff and, you know, has anybody, has, has anybody ever not brought at least one thing back to the grocer, you know, fresh berries? No, they weren't so fresh or something like that. Waste is a huge problem. But as yeah. you say, removing plastics without a, a viable cost effective alternative is just going to, again, increase costs besides uh, uh, wonderful points you're making about, you know, we won't we won't get them shipped to us anyways. You know, our selection will go down, costs will go up, that kind of thing. But that's a great example but, but, of what should be in the public debate, but is not in the public debate. ECCC is not even consulting with our suppliers from mm-hmm. abroad. Can you imagine? American suppliers weren't even aware that this was actually happening. Wow. And so ECCC gave until the end of August. So they actually released uh, the policy uh, advisory. I think it was early August, they gave 30 days for the industry to react, to respond in the middle of summer, Yeah, in the middle of summer. And when, when farmers are all very busy, and of course, the Americans had no clue what was going on. So it's over now. You can't really say anything, but they're probably going to go ahead with these changes, and it's probably going to cost us a lot more money. And it has nothing to do with grocers. But guess what? Who's going to get the blame? Yeah. Grocers. Absolutely. And that's why uh, the big five was very vocal about it. Let, let me just finish quickly and come back to the carbon tax. Um, you know, there's been a debate. Uh, first of all, I'll reiterate the debate is how much it increases the cost of food. But I see no disagreement that it does, in fact, increase the cost of food. And, and that's the other inflation debate for me is it's back to what I said. No, it's the cost of things that get to me. I don't care what the rate of inflation is when I bring it home. You know, like I buy the groceries, say I can't afford them. Oh, but it's only 1.2% higher. You know, <laughs> I couldn't afford them. And so I, I want your comment on the carbon debate. Yeah, so the carbon debate, and I actually had the pleasure to meet with the um with the Conservative Caucus on Monday while I was in Ottawa because they wanted to know more about some of our research on the carbon. We actually mm-hmm. have a project going on right now. Um, I got to tell you, Michael, I'll be straight with you. Any economist telling the media or anybody that they have an idea what the carbon tax is doing to retail prices, they're out to lunch. Yeah. There's no data to support any coefficient, which is why we're after the Bank of Canada right now. The Bank of Canada, the governor said a couple of weeks ago that uh, that it believes that uh, the carbon tax is responsible for, for 0.15 of, of inflation and without providing any data. So we yeah. actually sent, we actually submitted a request. I asked around on Monday in Ottawa if anybody actually 
had as any data coming from the Bank of Canada. We're still waiting for it. But I got to tell you, when you understand retail dynamics, it's impossible to set a coefficient because of us consumers. We influence prices. The weather influences prices. But here's what we're finding out. Industrial prices where costs are raw. You can actually yep. measure the impact of costs, including, yes, including the carbon tax. So if you look at the industrial product price index for food versus retail prices for food, the CPI, over the last three years, the IPPI index has exceeded the CPI, mm-hmm. which means that pressures pressures up the food chains are much more significant than at retail retail consumers put pressure down always always right especially right now people are shopping at dollarama for goodness sake so the pressure is real people are trading down but uh when you go up the food chain costs are really driving everything up and our hypothesis is this we don't believe that we can measure how the carbon tax is impacting retail prices. I think, I think it is impacting, but we can't measure, we can't come up with a coefficient. But we do believe that in, with industrial prices, the carbon tax is impacting prices from farm gate to industrial to processing. Yes. I think the carbon tax is really and the other thing that is not being measured right now by economists like Trevor Toombs, the Bank of Canada, and they did state that, is that they're willing to put a coefficient, but they don't take into consideration consideration the compounding effect yes. of the carbon tax on prices, especially industrial prices. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. Hey, look, we could talk all day, and you know me. I love it. I love the work you guys do down at Dalhousie. But let me just invite people to go to The Food Professor on Twitter. The Food Professor on Twitter. You get the update all the time, uh, latest stuff, new data coming in. Sylvain shares it with you. And, and look, please know how much we appreciate your expertise but the time you find for us on Money Talks. Thank you for taking time. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, right from the outset of the climate change debate, advocates' goals has been to instill fear, the talk of, you know it, climate Armageddon, climate apocalypse, climate emergency. Every extreme weather event is automatically linked to man-made climate change. For the media, it's been a case of the more extreme the threats of climate change, the better. We're not just going to all going to die. Come on, that's transformed. That's gone further. It's we're all going to die a horrible death. The end of the earth is near. At first, it was going to, we're going to freeze to death. People forget that. Going back when they first talked about uh, climate changes, we're going to freeze to death. But that gave way to, we're going to be burned alive. We're going to starve to death, which has been a popular theme, by the way, since what Thomas Malthus for published his theory that food production could never keep up with population growth in 1798. Starving to death seems to be a popular theme. Simply put, though, fears fear sells. In today's crowded media world, it's the go-to way to keep people's attention. And the climate change whole debate discussion has been no different. To that end, the discussion is far more about emotion than science. Both the warnings and the one-sided discussion 
are put to extremes, and children have been the target. It is climate apocalypse or nothing, and questioning the agenda comes at a steep price. Climate change is about political control, not gaining political advantage. It's more about the trillions of dollars involved in the business subsidies, research grants, and climate programs than science. Media coverage has been far more about ratings and advertising dollars than fostering an informed discussion. But when it comes to the cost to our mental health, climate anxiety is real, with extensive research chronicling the impact on children, which brings me to the quote of the week from a study published earlier this year. Environmental knowledge is inversely associated with climate change anxiety. That's the topic. That's the title. Environmental knowledge is inversely associated with climate change anxiety. In quotes. Results show that even after controlling for demographic characteristics, personality characteristics, and environmental attitudes, overall environmental knowledge and climate-specific knowledge were negatively related to climate change anxiety, end of quote. Simply put, the more climate knowledge equals less climate anxiety. But as I said, that's never been the goal. The goal is to scare the heck out of people. You know, it's fascinating. People are, are interested in real estate investing or real estate market in general, but it's such a broad topic. I mean, we could be talking real estate investment trusts. Uh, we could obviously be talking residential, uh, commercial, warehouses, shopping malls. You know, it's a huge industry and it's not going anywhere. But you know what? This is a time for expertise. When you get a raging bull market like we had for a few years, I come on, it's easy. Everyone's a genius. But now times are far more uncertain with some areas looking very interesting for investors, but others are dangerous. That's why I'm thrilled to have with me Vision Capital's Jeff Olin. He's the founder there, uh, co-portfolio manager. They've had a terrific track record. Jeff, thanks for finding a time. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, you know, as I just listed, there's this whole group of areas. There's no such thing as real estate. There's this component, this component, this component, which Vision Capital obviously does a great deal of work in. But give me an, an idea, just the broad brush of where we are in these various sectors. I mean, you know, which ones are most dangerous? Which ones are most interesting? That kind of thing for you. Certainly. Um, we are fortunate that our strategy employs a long and short strategy. So to the heart of your question, uh, we're not here to be bulls, as you will, in real estate. Um, and so, you know, today, clearly everybody now understands uh, that office is a fairly challenging place to be. Uh, for us, this isn't new. I mean, we saw 20-year secular decline in demand before the pandemic between 2000 and 2020. I mean, the lawyers don't have law libraries anymore. Deloitte built new buildings in Toronto, Montreal. Uh, they went from 300 square feet employee to 160 square feet employee. So that was already going on before the pandemic. So office is a challenge sector for sure. Uh, industrial has been a great sector. It's driven by some secular changes. E-commerce is one. Uh, reshoring, uh, return to manufacturing to North America is another. Uh, the pandemic showed us that just-in-time supply chain was maybe a dodo bird and we need to talk about just-in-case inventory management. So industrial is good. We like single-family rental homes uh, when it, you're challenged because of mortgage rates at 7% to buy a home in the United States. you got to put a roof over your family head somewhere, um, and that's a sector we like. Uh, we hesitant on malls, but we like necessity-based retail, grocery and pharmacy-anchored retail. Irrespective of recessionary times, you still have to eat, and you still have to buy drugs. And so there's a quite a bifurcation 
uh, among sectors, uh, which frankly is a market that we prefer. I mean, to your introductory comments, when a rising tide is lifting all boats, it's harder for guys like us to differentiate ourselves because we're long, short, fun, and we don't use leverage. But now, when there's volatility and variability, stock picking matters more. And, and I want to emphasize that, that what's so unique about Vision is that you've done all of your work for all of these years, never had a losing year, by the way, but all of these years you've done it in the stock market because the stock market can provide uh, you know, huge discounts at times. You've taken advantage of that, and there's other things it provides, and I'll get to that in a bit about mergers and acquisitions. But uh, just in that point alone, I mean, sometimes the stock market throws the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's just, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and quality things get uh, drawn down. Of course, that's what I'm interested in. That's what people should be interested in. That's what you're looking for. Where are we at in that kind of a cycle? I mean, that the overall market been dominated by, you know, it's certainly recovered, but been dominated by so few stocks. Are there still some, are you seeing they're sort of licking your chops going, this is, there's some values out here. Yeah, I mean, listen, over the last two, to meshing the first two questions, if you look at the prior 20 years and you looked at the difference in performance between the best performing REIT quartile and the worst performing REIT quartile, the average differential was 49%. So if there was ever a sector that seemed to warrant a more active approach, real estate would be amongst it. But in the first six months of 2022, that differential went to 15%. Everything was getting painted with the yeah. same brush. And as we touched on, they're not the same. And so the question, of course, is what was going to change it? And we posited at that juncture two things, one of two or two of two things. The first is earnings. They're not the same. And when you started to see cash flow come in the third quarter last year, and, you know, office stocks, another 1% decline in occupancy, 15% decline in net effective rents, and the single-family rent-a-home guy, 15% on renewals, they're not the same. And the second thing um, is M&A. Uh, the difference between real estate and any other asset class is the private market dwarfs the public market, and there's an arbitrage between the two. So today, I mean, you go back to the fourth quarter last year, and you had the REIT index down 28%. Whereas private REITs, and it was Blackstone's REIT that all the, got all the headlines, but it wasn't just Blackstone. It was Blackstone. It was Starwood. It was Schroeder's. It was KKR, uh, names up in Canada. They were reporting up 13% NAV because they were self-reporting based on repraisals that were tough to get done and because transactions weren't happening. Does that make any sense, a 41% yeah. gap? It does not make any sense to have a premium for illiquidity. Does that make any sense? It makes no sense. And the question is, which one was right? And we say both. Mm. In some sectors, the stock market got it right. Office stocks have been crushed. So we've covered a lot of our shorts in office uh, because, it, you know, 75, 80% down in some of these stocks. In other sectors, industrial, the stock market got it wrong. And, and let me just reemphasize something because it comes by quickly. Uh, the, the thing that Vision has had, I think, is a tremendous advantage over the years is that you can play the stock market for stocks to go down in, or to go up. So you've had many big successes. I know I remember, you know, when the oil fallout was coming in mid, 
you know, 214, 215, 216, you know, you did very, very well saying, hey, these, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that will go down in this market, the kind of real estate that will go down. And, you know, so it's a, a tough time. But I think just to reemphasize for people, this is a long and a short fund. So let me come back to uh, the REITs that, you know, again, it comes by quickly. My goodness, that's a differentiation between REITs. I mean, that's incredible. Like, in other words, that's the, maybe the most uh, straightforward way of saying some are good and some just are crap. You know, and then, of course, your job with your team is to identify which ones have provided good value as the market sold off everything. And so let's come back to that market for a second. When you're looking at the quality REIT side, what kind of things are you looking for in the future? I mean, what kind of returns are we sort of able to achieve? You feel confident about those returns, et cetera. Well, firstly, you know, we say in terms of the outlook, we say that our blood is supply and demand. Some of the cliches you hear in real estate, location, 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 we say is nonsense. I mean, you can have the best located office building, as you touched on, in downtown Calgary. How's that been going for you? Not so good. Um, so it's always supply and demand. Interest rates are a bit of a misnomer. Sure, they're important to real estate, but supply and demand tr- uh, in, uh, can trump interest rates, as we saw you know, in some of the takeovers uh, where Governor Singapore showed up in Canada. Yes. November in the worst credit environment since 2008 in bid uh, and bought one of our core holdings called Summit Industrial REIT, a $6 billion enterprise REIT, at a 33% premium to where it was trading at in the stock market. And by the way, a 20% premium to their own IFRS value and probably within 3% of what I highlighted on your show and when we highlighted this as single best M&A candidate. So. Yeah. Yeah, allow me to just interrupt you at that point, Jeff, because you did it more than one time. You said you've talked about Summit Rich several times on Money Talks, which we appreciate. But you talked to it about your uh, also a candidate being being taken over. So I want to just look at that. God, I mean, a terrible investment environment. The market had just topped out and had a tremendous decline coming in through November. It started, you know, uh, you know, bottoming out at that point, and it was a thirty-three percent plus premium. I just want to pat you on the back for that. Those are the kinds of things I like as an investor. Just kidding. No, I mean, it went spectacularly well. But that was your top recommendation on Money Talks. Yeah, I mean, it it was something we were very active on. Uh, We toured every property. They were in Toronto and Montreal, probably the two best industrial markets on the planet. Vacancy rates were 1%. Very high-quality logistics space. And it was a sector where a cap rate – which is the unlevered return on real estate, which is a common a moniker for real estate valuations, a cap rate was meaningless. When you had a 60% gap between the in-place rents and market rents, who cares about the one-year unlevered return or a cap rate? You must use a discounted cash flow or an IR calculation to ascertain that value which is precisely, obviously, what the Governor of Singapore Pension Plan did. And if you read the circular, Blackstone came in, I think, number two in the bidding. And this is the kind of work that we do and they do to highlight why, in that kind of environment, it was compelling and why the stock market had this wrong. But your point also about 
it's not so simplistic in this in these ver- variety of types of in, uh, real estate, uh, you know, beyond just residential or, or let's say single family homes, actually, you know, uh, where it's just, hey, the interest rates are X, this is going to happen. I mean, there's many more, many more variables, you know, at play there. And I want to come back to that differentiation. So give me an idea of what the top REITs you're looking at do. So what we're looking at, we like, uh, as I mentioned, a single family rental homes, homes in the Sunbelt. Um, they're cheaper to rent per square foot than an apartment. You get a backyard, you get a driveway. It's typically families to choose to locate there based on a local school district. Big deal in the United States. Limited new supply. And now, with, as I say, mortgage costs 7%. Uh, it's tough to buy a house. So that's a defensive place. We like manufactured housing communities, a very misunderstood sector. This sector's never had 12 months of declining net operating income ever, including the Great Recession. It typically trades as a result of superior fundamentals, limited new supply, and a big premium to net asset value. We've loved the fundamentals, but that's not what we do at Vision. We don't want to buy at a premium. We want to buy at a discount. Well, in June 2022, in November 2022, in September 2023, you can buy into that sector at a discount to net asset Superior fundamentals at a discount. That's what we like. We continue to like industrial for those secular themes I touched on. Uh, we like necessity-based grocery store anchored retail. Uh, not malls, but necessity-based retail is a sector we like. And we're shying away. Our biggest short position today is U.S. healthcare. Um, and particularly nursing homes, one of the difference between Canada and the United States, Canada, you see owner-operators. The United States, you see folks that own the real estate. The REITs own the real estate, and they lease the properties to operators. Well, those operators are having a hard time generating enough cash flow to pay their rent. Wow. The stocks are underwriting as if an occupancy was back to 2019. The stocks are underwriting margins. Well, it's tough to get labor to come back. It's expensive to get it back when it does. And because of the shortage, they're using agency labor, which will cost four times as much. So we think this stock, this sector, in terms of valuation, has really got ahead of itself. Yeah, the fascinating, as I say, when the market doesn't match, and of course that's how you've made a living, <laughs> identifying these situations. But it is fascinating to see the market and the asset value reflected in stock prices just don't match the reality of the world. Like if you broke that company up and sold all of its real estate, it would be worth significantly more than the stock is allowing for. And it could be, you know, I mean, it's rare that it's actually the other way around, but significantly more. And, and that's why I'm so interested in this particular environment. Where, as I say, we get deceived because, you know, the, the stock market rise has been dominated by, you know, several in the tech, you know, whatever, the magnificent seven in the tech sector, whatever cliche I've got. But, you know, that's why I was interested in getting a chance to talk with you to see, in fact, you know, I personally prefer to buy when the crowd isn't outside the door, you know, <laughs> you know, and I want it. When, and, and you look historically, that is just so consistent, you know, that the, yeah, I mean, for values. We've had 20 takeovers in our holdings in 15 years. And you look today, the latest statistic from Prequin is there's $344 billion of dry powder sitting with pension funds and endowment funds that have a tough time, even with higher interest rates, getting a inflation-adjusted real return on bonds. And they're increasing their weights from real estate from 5 to 10% to 15 to 20%. Private equity funds fully funded in cash. 
the Blackstones, the Brookfields, $344 billion looking to buy properties. That's a great backdrop for REITs. We'd rather not compete with Blackstone, thank you very much. We'd rather sell to Blackstone, which we participated in three times in the past five years. In fact, Blackstone figured it out. They've bought 50 REITs since they launched the real estate group. Between December 2021 and June 2022, they bought five REITs. And so, you know, one of our uh, advisors at uh, leading U.S. firm, J.P. Morgan, called us up in in, uh, in last quarter and said, you guys are kind of like the farm team for, for uh, Blackstone. I think it's a compliment. <laughs> I think it is, too. But uh, again, it's, it's a case of, you know, the other thing we get a little hung up on the short term uh, headlines. You know, I mean, that's maybe by nature. We do it in all sorts of markets and in other areas. But again, uh, what time horizon do you use when you look at a property, you see it's undervalued, you go into the market, you take advantage of it. What's your time frame? We're longer term investors. I mean, we might have liquidity in a day, but the themes we focus on are driven by supply and demand fundamentals uh, that take time to work out. So, and you mentioned our short in office, this was driven exactly by supply and demand. Too many uh, building new buildings being built at the same time demand was diminishing. And uh, so we use supply and demand to establish forward-looking models of net asset value. What is the real estate worth underlying publicly traded entities? And our themes, typically our core holdings will have, you've, you've seen it, Summit Reed. How many times did I mention it uh, before it was bought by Government Singapore? Uh, they take time to work out our core holdings 18 to 24 months or longer. Uh, let's, uh, you know, I don't want to finish without uh, getting you to give me an example of what's interesting you now. You know, I always put you on the spot that way, but I appreciate you sharing. And, and as you said, Summit REIT was one of those. Dream REIT was another one of those, you know. Uh, so tell me just what's grabbed your attention right now. I mean, we love something called First Capital REIT. It's a $3 billion market cap REIT. It's in the grocery necessity-based area. We've said publicly we think this is the best grocery anchored portfolio, necessity-based retail portfolio in the world. That's a big statement. Why such a bold statement? One is in Canada, not in the United States. We have less less square feet per capita. It's in six major urban centers only, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton. The stock's trading at a 40% discount to net asset value based on their IFRS valuation, which we agree with. Um, And you get a 6% dividend while you wait for the best portfolio in the planet. So that's a name we like a lot. There's been activism in the name uh, last year. We were quietly behind the scenes trying to be constructive in that regard. There's been uh, some board refreshment there, and we're hopeful that's the beginning of the story and some of this value is going to be covered. So that's a great name for your audience. I mentioned manufactured housing communities. We like Sun Communities, which is in that space. Again, 20% discount to NAV. You're talking about a $15 billion U.S. market cap stock. We like Boardwalk REIT in Canada. We're shying away from apartments, uh, but not Boardwalk REIT uh, because it's in Alberta. Uh, There's no rent controls and huge population migration to Alberta. Um, $3.5 billion market cap. Cheap. It's had a great run. We've talked about it in the past on your show. We still see about an $80 net asset value. The stock's below 70 Industrial, we like two names, Dream Industrial Reed in Canada, uh, 24% discount to net asset value. DIR is its symbol, 5.1% yield, 
$4 billion market cap. And in the U.S., we like first industrial REIT, uh, which is a $7 billion market cap. We think 21% discount on the New York Stock Exchange for first industrial REIT. Control is in the market of that. Great management, great development pipeline, 50% discount. Sorry, not discount, gap between in-place rents and market rents. They got three to five-year visibility on how they're going to generate cash flow growth there. So those are some good names for your audience. I'll add one more. Of course, uh, all of that incorporated in the Vision Alternative Income Fund, uh, which you can go to visioncap.ca to get more details on. But that's where people are putting, uh, you know, some of these suggestions into their RSP. I mean, they take it in the Vision Alternative Income Fund uh, in the RSP. Uh, you know, as usual, Jeff, a fabulous job. I could listen all day. Uh, great stuff. So knowledgeable. But uh, thank you for sharing. And again, uh, the Vision Alternative Income Fund uh, is what I'm talking about. And you can just go to visioncap, uh, uh, vision.ca. Great stuff, Jeff. Nice to see you. Thanks very much. Gee, what a surprise. Interest rates in the news, but they're in the news around the world. Of course, we had the Federal Reserve meeting. Everybody's watching it. Federal Reserve says, hey, it's uh, let's hold on right now. And I want to bring Mike Levy into that. Boy, talk about singing from the same song sheet when I read what the Bank of England said, for example, obviously what the Bank of Canada said, now the U.S. Well, it looks like somewhat, Mike, like the universal pause button has been hit. But I think it was a bit surprising to everybody. Bank of Canada paused. U.S. Fed paused. Bank of England paused. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the Bank of England uh, had have held rates steady for the first time in nearly two years. I mean, they were every single meeting. They were going up. Yeah. But it is a universal pause. But I think it's pause and pray. It's a double P. Uh, pause and then pray. Just pray that when they come back in October and November that they're holding off some of the interest rate hikes over the last couple of years are going to have worked their way through the system so they can take a step back. But so far, it's been a non-avail. Canada's inflation rate, U.S. inflation rate. So I, I, I just, I'm glad they're taking the breath, but, but boy, I'm not as confident as what I was about the fact that uh, we're going to see any more pauses now for a while. Well, I mean, you know, we, I'm not sure if we can get a, a, a significant hold off and then leading to a decline unless we get a full recession. And that's the big debate, of course, if, when, all of that kind of stuff. Because let, let's face it, I mean, in Canada, we had a 4% in inflation rate in August. Well, that's still double what their target is. So that, that we need a heck of a lot of follow through on that. Uh, you know, in the United States, it's, it's significantly higher. And then, gosh, the UK still has an inflation rate, what, something like 6%. And they held off. And it's just so far above their target rates. And I know this is where the disagreement is and the debates are ongoing. But, you know, we need a much bigger economic slowdown than is showing in the books right now, I think, to get back to their target rate, which I think was one of the main takeaways, Mike, which was higher for longer. But, Mike, do you think that possibly, and I hate to say this after our conversation last week, that politics is starting to enter into the equation in a bigger way than any central bank would like to see. Politics in the U.S., politics in Canada, 
politics for sure in Britain. Do you think maybe they, the, the central banks are feeling this kind of pressure? I hope not, but what do you think? I, I don't think they are. I think they are committed. I think they are very clear that if inflation gets away from them, if the perception that inflation is getting away from them, their credibility will be obliterated. And I, I've been thinking right from the get-go here when they started to raise rates, uh, their big concern was nobody believes us anymore. Let me, let me just give you something. I mean, the I'm trying not to be too critical of their track record other than let me tell you what their track record is, why we should maybe take everything they say with a grain of salt. And I'm not so sure they're not saying that recently, especially. But look, March 2020, they said to us very clearly that inflation wouldn't be a problem. You know, you get to January 221. Oh, I remember that's when inflation was only going to be transitory. Then you get to September 221. Do you remember this one? And this is, I think, where they're culpable and people should be frustrated. They said that interest rates won't rise till 2024. So that's September 221, two years ago. They said that interest rates won't rise till this coming year. I mean, it would have been t- uh, tough to be more wrong than that, but with more damage than that. This is where I feel badly for people who went out, said, oh, okay, so I can afford to take out this money. I, I shouldn't be worried. They're not even going to raise rates till 224. By the way, then in January 222, they said a recession will be needed to lower inflation. That, that may be right. Uh, December 222, disinflation has begun. February 223, a soft landing. I mean, all of this stuff, their track, let's put it this way. If my track record was like their track record, I'd be broke. Yeah, and maybe and many Canadians are probably sitting there going, that's why I am broke. I believe broke. them. Exactly. Well, to me right now, Mike, it's an overriding fear that starting another round of rate hawks, no matter which central bank we're talking about, brings almost, brings on possibly an almost worst-case scenario for an economic growth and a real grinding down of the economies of these countries. Uh, I, I think part of this uh, is fear of what the impact is going to be on not just one more rate hike, but one, two, three, and maybe a handful of rate hikes. So I think they're looking at that. But uh, honest to gosh, we're going towards that scenario if they start to uh, hike rates again because of the impact of the hikes that they've already had. Well, I I think one of the significant things that came out of uh, uh, the Fed meeting this week was that they removed their forecast of two rate drops or a half a percent you know, a 50 basis point rate drop in the next year. Two of those were gone from previous uh, pre- previous statements. So they're obviously thinking it's higher for longer. Well, at some point that will be recessionary. <laughs> you know, it, it, the soft landing, they keep seem to be working to get out of that soft landing scenario because that wasn't mentioned either. Well, let me just throw one more onto this before we come yeah. to an end. David Rosenberg, about 10 days ago, the uh, infamous, famous Canadian economist, um, said that going against the pack, that he's looking for two rate decreases the beginning part of next year. And that's contra to everything we've heard. But he said that the impact of the rate hikes is going to come about, and he's looking for two rate decreases. I wouldn't take that to the bank, but it is another source that I have no problem listening to because he has got credibility. Yeah, very much so. And again, that I think highlights what Jerome Powell said at Jackson Hole, which is, hey, these things are tough. These things are complex. And we appreciate that on Money Talks, which is why I've always been so critical of politicians who stand up there 
if they even talk about economics, if they talk about the credit markets, if they do talk about finance, they pretend they know something. Well, they don't. They're guessing. And so that's one of the things that we have to take with a grain of salt. But uh, I, I think uh, it'll be interesting. One last thing on David Rosenberg. If we do get the rate decreases, that tells me the economy is really tanked at that point. And that seems the debate is how soon and how oh, yeah. deep is that tanking? You know, I've got to say that that thought did not enter. But you're absolutely, you know, enter my mind. You're absolutely right. If that's the scenario, yeah, I think we are in trouble. Well, we'll have to chronicle it, of course, on Money Talks. In the meantime, Mike, go have a drink, because I was going to say have a good weekend, but they better start with that. Mike, thanks very much. Great, Mike. Have a good weekend. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. But first, let me share with you a little personal context. You know, my first time summer job was when I was 15. I worked at the Army and Navy department store. If you're not familiar with it, that was a forerunner to other discount department stores like Zeller's. But I didn't pay income tax, of course, because I didn't earn enough money to go over the basic personal exemption. But I did pay into employment insurance, despite the fact that I was ineligible to collect because I would stop working to return to school, which makes me ineligible. But that's the same thing that's happening right now that I would bet you the vast majority of students working in the summer don't understand. They pay into EI, but they can't collect it. But after going to graduate school, I started to work full time and have paid income tax. Gosh, I hate to think about how long, but let's just leave it at over 40 years and along with paying employment insurance. But I've never collected employment insurance. So in other words, for me, EI was just simply another tax. But what most people don't seem to realize was that starting, I think it was 1996, under Liberal Finance Minister Paul Martin, they started to put the EI fund, it was separate up to that point, but they started to put it into general revenues, just like all other taxes. And that played a significant role in helping the federal liberals, first under Jean Chrétien, but then under Paul Martin, lower the deficit. Eventually, they balanced five straight budgets. You got to forgive this divergence, but you know what? My bet is that today, Liberal Finance Minister Martin would be called far right by the Liberal NDP government, by the cabinet, by the prime minister, vast majority of the media. My, how things have changed. What's clear is that it comes to financial management. Today's Liberal parties is miles away from that of Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. Actually, it's a long way from Thomas Mulcair's NDP too, but I'll leave that today for, well, I'll leave that for today's political reporters and commentariat to ignore. But that brings me to the specifics of the shocking stat. In the March budget, as Blacklock's reporter reminds us, Finance Minister Christia Freeland stated that they were going to hold steady when it came to employment insurance rates. In her March 28th budget, she promised that they would be held steady for years to come. But here's the thing. That was despite the fact that, what, seven weeks earlier in February, she had received a briefing note from the Department of Employment confirming that rates would have to rise, and they are rising. And you know how much? Employment insurance is about to take an additional $1.4 billion out of Canadian workers' paychecks. And that will go, of course, to general revenues. Last week, right as we were going to Money Talks here, I put it on the podcast, put it up, we had the federal government talk about some GST relief on purpose-built rental housing. 
I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in this. Ozzy, you must have a lot of practice. This is going to be an easy subject for you because you've had a lot of practice talking about this. Come on. They promised this relief in 2015. Yeah, and then you and I talked about that, yes. you know, we're literally losing hundreds of suites that uh, could have been built. Well, now the government did uh, leave. Now, remember, it's a federal tax. They also want to uh, uh, in, insist or recommend to the provinces that they do the same on provincial sales taxes. Yeah, we did that with Benjamin Tall. Going back a little bit here, uh, CIBC said, I forget what the na- uh, how much it was, that he took a Toronto suite and said, you're talking about, what was it, if they removed HST, GST on the building, that would be something, what, was it about $50,000? 60000 a unit. Yeah. Right. So it's significant. I mean, I, I, I applaud this move. I think it's way too late in coming. All of it is in the reaction mode. But you know what, Ozzy, I, I've got some questions here. I mean, first of all, have they given any sign when this will come through? When will they put this legislation through? Well, that's the big question. We need an answer. I mean, you're entitled starting on anything that applied after September 14 this year and right up to December 31st, 2030. So that's good. And you've got to finish the building by December 31, 2035. So you have seven years. It was a long time coming, but at least the window is now open for people to dust off their applications. You know, as always, we've got to see some more details, but one of the ones that jumps out at me is, what if I'm already in the midst of a construction of a new rental place? You know, does that count? Can I, it's like on that date, are you saying on September 14th, the next day I can start not paying GST? <laughs> well, like, like with all government relief, uh, it, it never is as easy as it looks. Nobody really knows that question, but that's a brilliant question because what if I decided I'm, we're, offering hundreds of new condos, thousands of new condos right now, right throughout the country. And maybe in the middle of it, maybe I don't get enough uh, sales. Can I get that tax relief mm. on my, if I convert to rentals? Well, and again, think of the implications. And I'm not being critical of this move. I support the move. But, you know, what do we do for housing supply as affordable housing? Because that's, you know, there's two sides to this coin is we want more affordable housing. Well, that's a supply issue or lower population growth. That doesn't seem to be on the, in the cards at this point. And we want more rental. You know, so if all of a sudden everybody jumps and says, hey, we're going to turn to rental if we're constructing something, well, that means we're not going to get those whatever it was. Uh, you know, we, was it CMHC we said we needed 5.8 million more uh, houses built or homes built between now and 2030? Well, that's going to hurt that number. Well, and that's that's the key. The thing also is when you drill down into the to the, the like, look at the housing accelerator fund, which was really promised in 2021. Now they say we require local governments to end exclusionary zoning and encourage building apartments near public transit, or you may not get approval for money on the housing accelerator fund. To me, Mike, I, I hate to be sort of suspicious, but it's it's it looks to me the Liberals got poll results this this summer. And they were lousy. And they're now dusting off everything that they promised in the past. But the, the difficulty is that we don't know all of the details. And so when we have all of the details, then we can make a, make a general comment. But overall, we've got to salute something is happening. 
Yeah, and, and I think it's also, I agree with you, this is a government that has done more polling than any government in history, but they also got this. They got the Prime Minister saying, uh, whatever it was, a month ago, that housing isn't a federal responsibility, and of course, uh, opponents made hay out of that because there were so many clips of the Prime Minister saying they're going to solve the affordable housing problem. I, I think it's both. I think that probably triggered the polling results you saw later, and yeah, I agree, but at the same time... Uh, you know, if you make a positive move, I'll give it to that degree. I'll give it credit. But as you say, I don't know enough about this yet. I haven't seen the details. But the key is it doesn't matter if I know. Developers are making decisions. Investors are making decisions. The faster we can get these details, the faster we can get someone saying, that sounds okay to me. I'm going to move ahead with that because we've certainly had a, a big uh, time. And I certainly not knocking removing uh, taxes when it comes to that. Um, it's just interesting. Let me go back to the market now for a second. Just change gears, Ozzy, because you're looking at the competition, looking at the slowdown in the market. Now it's starting to translate. For example, in the pre-sale market, we had some buildings canceled, but we're also seeing some incentives for Canadians. Yeah, we see a restaurant developer takes up to a hundred thousand dollar reduction in price. He's waiving the assignment fees. Like if you want to assign, normally a developer charges between one and five percent fee. Well, they're waiving that fee and they're reducing their deposits from 20% to 10%. You go to Surrey, one of the buildings there offers a raffle on a C-Class Mercedes on a Rolex watch. You know, they're, they're doing this not because they love you, but they do that because they need to finish uh, raising enough pre-sales in order to get the financing. This is just the kind of comment I used to make at school to get me kicked out into the hall. But what? <laughs> they're auctioning off a Rolex? Holy Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> he won't be entering. He already owns two. Ozzy, <laughs> as I say, enough trouble for me. People can go to ozbuzz.ca, though, and you'll get further. He's writing more about this. It's free. Go to ozbuzz.ca and sign up for the free e-newsletter. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And I, I want to just make a statement that is from Red Skelton, and it makes me very popular with my wife. He said that his wife got a mud pack, and she looked great for two days. And then the mud fell off. <laughs> oh, Ozzie, you're doing nothing but getting me in trouble. Ozzie Jurek. I'm going to bring Victor Adair in live from the trading desk. Hey, Vic, I was thinking this week after the Federal Reserve made their you know, policy statement, uh, but was more hawkish, clearly, and the market reacted to that. And I thought, wow, they're finally believing the Federal Reserve that rates are going to stay higher for longer. Yeah, the, the, the market, I guess, for, I don't know, 18 months or something, keeps hoping, you know, that the yeah. Fed will be done. And once they're done, then you just buy everything with, with both hands. Well, and the Fed just keeps saying, you know, we're, we're not going to cut rates anytime soon. But the market seems to not want to listen and so on. So anyway, the, the bullish enthusiasm was dampened. Let's to say the least uh, by the Fed action on Wednesday. Uh, in a nutshell, the, the stock market was lower. Interest rates all along the curve were higher, and the U.S. dollar was higher. And not surprisingly, with interest rates higher and the U.S. dollar higher, the gold market was lower. Maybe the only thing, you know, that was up on the week was uh, crude oil. We traded to, a, I think, a 14-month high or something on WTI this week. Let me come back to interest rates because we are seeing now these measures. Is it a 15-year high? Is it a 25-year high? You know, but my goodness, across the curve, did interest rates ever bounce up? 
Yeah, in the U.S., the short-term rate, the Treasury bill, three-month Treasury bill yield is at a 23-year high. Wow. You go further out the curve, the 5, the 10-year, they're up at about a 16-year high. Same in Canada, the 5 and 10s are about a 16-year high. Uh, certainly, you pay attention to the 5s in Canada because of the relationship with how mortgages are priced. Uh, now, we talk about a lot of things uh, with you, and you do it on at the trading desk at victoradare.ca. Uh, so I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I also want to come to, of course, one of the major stories was the UAW strike uh, in the U.S., uh, where at least for Stellantis, and I think it was GM, it looks like it's more aggressive. Ford seems to uh, suggest that there might be more progress, so they're not getting the escalation in strikes. But, you know, it's part of a bigger program that you've been writing about for ages called, you know, it's the catch-up wage increases. Yeah, uh, I have been writing about this for a few months, that I think that in this is big-picture stuff, not day-to-day trading. But I think that inflation is destined to stay higher. And I know there's some really highly educated, very experienced people who disagree with me on this, but just an opinion that it, that the inflation rate won't get back down to the 2% target because all over the place, people are trying to do what they can to catch up, not only just to rising prices, but to catch up to the earnings of other people. You know, And with the UAW here, I fully expect that strike is going to expand and you know more people will get laid off because of the shutdowns and so on. There's a big private healthcare provider in the United States, Kaiser. Uh, they're looking at their, a, a lot of their workers going on strike later this month. And it's, it's kind of always the same thing. You know, we need to get paid more so that we can sustain lifestyle. And when, if, if an, everybody is trying to catch up to everybody else, I don't, I don't see that cycle ending. And that, plus, of course, higher energy prices, seems to put upward pressure on interest rates. I mean, it's, it's just almost like common sense to me. Uh, I don't want to finish without coming back to the bond market, but this time I want to go to Canada because the most important bond in Canada is the five-year bond because that has such huge influence on what our five-year mortgage rates are doing. And a lot of people sitting there who are going to renew or maybe get in the market want lower rates, but there is nothing I saw in the bond market that gave me optimism that way. Yeah, the five-year, I think, was about 4.28% at the high this week, and uh, the upward pressure has been there. I think the upward pressure actually like whacked the Toronto stock market this week. We're mm-hmm. down about 800 points. There just doesn't seem, at the moment anyway, to be a, a, an alternate route to anything. Like It just doesn't seem we're going to get any lower interest rates I suppose, Mike, without some real slowdown across the economy that'll reduce demand. That's kind of what I'm seeing there, too. But, of course, you get to chronicle it every day. You get to, you get to spend the weekend working. I always like that. You know, you, get, you work six days, and the seventh day you prepare to work the other six days. Victor, I'll invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Have a great week. Hey, nice talking to you, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. We've been talking a lot about food on this show, or grocery prices, so I'll be brief. I mean, who the heck likes paying higher prices, by the way, especially when it comes to an essential like food? I mean, I don't have to buy furniture. I don't have to buy a new car. I don't have to stay in a hotel and travel. But we all have to eat. We have to live somewhere. We're all impacted by higher energy prices, especially if you're in the urban center. Think about this, especially people who live in rural areas. They can't take the electric vehicle option. 
they got to pay more for gasoline. And of course, uh, businesses like farms, for example, but other businesses, and they pay more for diesel. That's why, by the way, since we've been talking about inflation early on, we predicted it clearly here, but we talked about those three items. So the goofy, as I said, nobody wanted to pay more higher food prices. For some people, it's a very serious hardship. And that's what I think has contributed maybe most to Canadians feeling a high level of anxiety around their personal finances. But, and here's the thing, as I regularly state, just because you identify a problem does not justify all solutions. And case in point, when it comes to the outcry about high food prices, the goofy goes to those people. And there were many, boy, I was looking on social media, it seems like every second one, wants the government to institute price controls. You heard that earlier with Sylvain Charlebois talking about the minister talking about that. They want the government to nationalize the grocery business. Well, history tells us that's a Hall of Fame bad idea that ignores the track record of monopolies and government monopolies specifically. But you don't have to think too hard about that. Just look at healthcare, the shortage of family doctors, the worst record among developed nations for access to treatment in a wide variety of areas, from access to a specialist to wait times to see an emergency room physician. I mean, come on, did I have to tell anybody who's waited for months for a passport or experienced the relentless flight delays in Toronto's Pearson Airport about the performance of government monopolies? I mean, the list goes on, but that's government. But the goofiest part is how many people are ready to sign on to monopolies, in this case, new monopoly and groceries, while ignoring the massive benefits of competition. Wow, the monopolies, you, you, the consumer have no choice. We've basically got no rights. But with competition, hey, that's when we're in charge. Companies vie for our business. It's competition that motivates companies, well, to improve the quality of a product, to put things on sale in an effort to win us over as customers. Yet we have a heck of a lot of people saying we'd be better off with a government monopoly fixing prices. I mean, I just shake my head at that. How about looking at the history of the former Soviet Union or East Germany? Want to see empty shelves? Take a look there. As journalist and co-founder of the new on or the online newsletter The Line, Jen Garrison says, "If Canada nationalizes its grocery stores, I'm out. I'm leaving." Well, personally, I'll say, "Move over, Jen, because I won't be far behind." You know, high grocery prices are indeed a big problem for millions of Canadians, but government price fixing and monopolies—come on, that's not even close to the answer. That'll make things worse. That's all the time we have this week for Money Talks. A reminder, join us to Money Talks Tweets. Uh, join us for Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And again, I can't tell you how I appreciate when people say we recommend Money Talks to their friends or family or coworkers. And I hope you join us for five minutes with Mike, which you can get at mikesmoneytalks.ca. Getting great response to that, by the way, and I do appreciate it. But mikesmoneytalks.ca, hey, it's free. Why not do it? And in the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week. Thank you.